Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. Today I'm here with Joe Martineau and Mark Pedrilli. Welcome back, guys. Good morning. We talked already about the Sunshine Act of Missouri. We talked about the process of issuing a request to a government agency. We talked about the philosophy behind the act. And let's turn our attention to meetings. Who wants to give the overview about how the Sunshine Law might apply to access to meetings? You know, the statute is very clear that records of a quorum of a public governmental body are to be noticed. You have to give at least 24 hours notice of that meeting. If there are items to be discussed that are going to be discussed in a closed session, you need to identify the exemption that allows the closure of that. There has to be agenda posted. And, uh, you know, things, emergencies can come up during the course of a meeting that may require a discussion, you know, outside the presence of the public. And that can occur. But you have to explain why it's an emergency, why you have to discuss it today, why it can't wait for a properly noticed meeting. The other important thing is, uh, you know, people do have a right to film what's going on in those meetings. What should a person do, a citizen who's trying to record and someone comes up to them and says, you need to put that away? What should they do at that point? Well, I think the proper course, and I've certainly advised our reporters of this, is to, if the request is made by someone in a position of authority is to object politely and do what they tell you you have to do and uh, you know make an issue of it later. I mean, you risk being arrested. You risk being arrested. If the police officer who's uh, attending that meeting tells you to put that camera away, I mean, you can take that risk, but I certainly wouldn't advise it. You know, follow the law, follow the person who's making the request. You mentioned that sometimes things come up and there might be an emergency where you got to close the meeting. My understanding is that that closure or the reason for the closure itself has to be in writing. Is that correct? It has to be reflected in the minutes. In the minutes. Okay. I mean, it should be stated on the record or reflected in the minutes. Yeah. Mark, you've dealt with some cases where there's meetings like in the airport controversy. You sure. Right. Tell us some of the things that might come up in a meeting where it gave rise to the conflict. With, no, right. Well, I'm, I'm glad Joe said that uh, they have to identify the exemption because that's a, one of our arguments is they have to identify the specific reason that they're going into a closed meeting. And here's the problem. Governments throughout the state list all the reasons. And so you don't know what reason they're going in. So, and I've seen this done in municipalities. I've seen it done in the city. I've seen it done in the county where they just list generally all the potential reasons you could go into one. But that's not enough information because it needs to be enough for the public to assess it and to say, well, are you talking about litigation? Are you meeting with a lawyer to talk? Because that would be a legitimate reason. And here's the real problem. And just from my practical experience and just my general knowledge, People go have roving closed sessions. We've already proved it in the airport litigation. They have short open meetings, 10, 20 minutes. Then they go into closed meetings and they open it up to all the dialogue for hours that anybody would want to talk about that you just don't want the public to know about for whatever reason. And that's illegal. And it happens all the time. You have to stick to the script. You have to be careful. You have to take minutes and occasionally, well, they took audio recordings, which we use. We got those in litigation. Of the purportedly closed Right, meeting. and we put those all out for folks to see. I think we put it on Twitter with a link and the newspaper, Post-Dispatch and other people. Was that done with an in-camera review by a court or did they just No, they up? just had to give us that in discovery. So okay. that was not an in-camera review. So we once we received them and reviewed them, we realized 
boy, they were talking about everything that they wanted to talk about with regard to privatization. They didn't stick to the reasons that were identified, the exceptions, and it was just sort of a free-for-all. That's against the law. But this happens a lot. I mean, it happens all over because, you know, sometimes these in small municipal settings, they don't know or they're not getting advice in some cases of what you can and cannot go into closed session for. But it's an important thing because, you know, most of this stuff should be done in open session. Obviously, it's a way for us to see what's going on in our government. It's probably one of the primary reasons for the Sunshine Law was to allow people to attend and to figure out what's happening in the government. So the abuse of this, I would say, has probably been slowly emerging and I think getting worse over the years because for whatever reason, these governments just don't want media or anyone hearing about certain things. You know, for example, in the privatization, we argued that they wanted to privatize the airport. And it wasn't necessarily about a lease provision for two years to be discussing a lease provision. So it was a political issue. And there was a reason to sort of conceal this information from others. And they openly stated it. I think at one point they said, we don't want Tony Messenger writing an article about this. <laughs> and that was literally something that somebody said. And that was one of the reasons that they're in closed session. So there you go. I call that a smoking gun. Yeah, I would point this out, too. I mean, it's important that public governmental bodies educate their officials about the requirements of the statute, because sometimes it is by design that they go into closed session. But sometimes it's just like a spilled glass of milk. You know, it spreads out into other things because they don't understand it. It's important to educate them that you can't do that. And then there's the prospect that one member of that committee or council or whatever it is may say, well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't so-and-so, maybe it's our lawyer, tell us we really can't discuss this because it wasn't part of the reason for going into closed session. And the other people will say, oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. So education is important. And even though it's not required by the statute, it would be nice if it was. I mean, you have to have a custodian, you have to do certain things, but it would be nice if, you know, I'm on a condo board in Florida and there's a statute down there that says if you're on the condo board, you have to have a certain amount of education about the requirements of being on the condo board. It's frustrating, it's time consuming, but that educational process is extremely important and it should be part of the Sunshine Law, in my opinion. It would yeah. seem like at a minimum, somebody in the meeting should be appointed to probably with a list of the exceptions in front of them to be just noticing, oh, we're now out of that. Little thing. check marks. For, for instance, uh, statute 610.021 provides that closed meetings and closed records are authorized, but there are exceptions and it lists such things as litigation, confidential attorney-client communications, real estate deals, as pending deals, employment, state militia, and many others. But I certainly understand how conversation, I mean, look at this discussion right here, where one thing blends into another, and maybe, you know, the best practice would be to have someone there with a list and say, okay, we are now out of the exception that we went in for. Yes. Well, good and, point. Right. And they need training too. And one thing I run into all the time, because I take a lot of depositions in constitutional cases or civil rights cases of government officials. And one of the questions I always ask is about if you've been trained on sunshine law. And even more importantly, in some ways, have you been trained on the retention rules? Are you keeping your records? Are you keeping medical records? Are you scanning in sick calls or complaint forms of your patients into the medical records? Because as we've discovered, they don't always do that. Things go missing and they're not properly retaining the records that they have. 
blood pressure charts, vital form charts that are on paper. They're not retaining those. Their answer is almost always invariably, no, I've never been trained on that. And this is St. Louis County. And they certainly have the resources and the ability to do that. And this is one of the largest municipalities in the region. So yes, they need to train. We run into the failure to train all the time. Does the Sunshine Act provide that a government entity must keep or retain any sort of record for any period of time? I say yes. There's an argument about this, though. Chapter 109, which you had in there a little bit, which I was surprised to see, by the way, because that's often ignored. In fact, one of the cases we filed brought up Chapter 109 in a violation of it when it came to destroying messages. And the ruling was there wasn't a private right of action that only an attorney general or a prosecutor could bring that action. And again, back to the education, we're constantly telling prosecutors throughout the state, you know, St. Louis County, St. Louis City, you can prosecute government officials for destroying public records. Most of them don't know it. And there's not a general understanding of what 109 means because there hasn't been a lot of litigation regarding it. I agree with that. The problem is, at least in my view, and what I've seen from the courts is that the Sunshine Law is not a record retention statute. Chapter 109 is the record retention statute. And Mark is right. There's a appellate court opinion that might be the Supreme Court opinion that says that there's no private right of action. In other words, that an ordinary citizen can't sue over a failure to retain records. And the retention statute in Chapter 109 really describes records in remarkably different ways than the Sunshine Law. And so there is a degree where the two statutes don't necessarily meld together real well. Right. And that was the problem with the case against Governor Greitens' office and the Confide app that would delete text messages. And even the appellate court in saying, well, you've got no private right of action. These records weren't retained for purposes of the Sunshine Law because they disappeared the moment they were read. The appellate court there said something needs to be done about this. And I think everyone recognizes that. Fortunately, I don't know that we're seeing episodes of the use of that type of app anymore because of the controversy that occurred as a result of that whole incident. But it does show you the problem that exists in melding the two statutes together. Yeah, that was quite a lawsuit. <laughs> was that yours? And that was mine. Okay. <laughs> so, and, you know, we knew going in, it was a tough case, but I take tough cases. We know there's cases we're going to win, right? And we know there's cases that are going to be tough calls. And, you know, I remember uh, we were in front of the appellate court in the Western District and, you know, we were, you're slated for a limited amount of time, like 15 or 10 minutes. Or or 10 minutes. They gave you 15? I, I'm not even sure. It was 10 minutes. You want to know how long it went? 40. Oh. <laughs> and everyone was shocked, I think, because of the interest and the constant questions and the engagement. And you can tell there was sort of a frustration from the justices that they had to rule against the plaintiff. But they were upset about it in the ruling, in their footnotes. The law needs to change. Things need to be done. This is an important issue. This is a huge hole in the law. One of the good parts of it is when we sued, everyone got off of Confide because everybody was on Confide in Jefferson City. It was well known that that's how you communicated. There was even a point where a lawyer and a lobbyist had admitted to Jason Hancock, who was writing for the Star or I think Kansas City Star at that time, that they were communicating with the governor's office using Confide. I mean, can you imagine? So it was obvious that this was a big deal and it needed to be stopped. And hopefully it has. Hopefully it has. The practical effect is, but here's the problem, is everybody knows who knows anything about technology. You can pick up your cell phone right now and start deleting messages, right? You don't really need Confide to do it. You can do it with your SMS messages. You can do it with anything else. It's fairly easy to predict that that's what's going on. If a government official gets something, they're like, ooh, I don't want this on my phone. They're going to delete it. 
So probably some of the most important stuff that people want to see are probably still being deleted to a large extent. So there needs to be a change in the law, I think, to address that. Or there needs to be an understanding, you know, maybe creating a private right of action for 109. One thing that I've always wondered about that particular case, there is a provision in the statute that deals with It's a little bit vague. It's 610.025, and it talks about electronic communications and the requirements uh, that you, well, let me just read it. Any member of a public governmental body, of course, here, you weren't dealing with a public governmental body per se. You were dealing with the governor's office who transmits any message relating to public business by electronic means shall also concurrently transmit that message to either the member's public office computer or the custodian of records in the same format. The provisions of this section shall only apply to messages sent to two or more members of that body so that when counting the sender, a majority of the board members are copied. Yeah. And I think the the appellate court even mentioned that and subtly maybe criticized the fact that you hadn't raised that argument. I'm not sure that that statute would have applied in your case. It's the closest thing that I could see. Right. To being applicable in that case. And it's something that could be amended within the Sunshine Law to possibly cover this problem that we're talking about. Right. And look, I've read that provision probably 20 times. And each time it gives you a headache. It's just hard to understand. We didn't feel comfortable moving forward on that statute. We felt more comfortable. There was another one that's also a little bit ambiguous, and it has to deal with, I think it says, original public records shall not be removed except with the permission of the custodian of records. And I think we made an argument that, well, the original public record was the text message. And by destroying it, you removed it. And I thought that was, we had a shot at that argument. We didn't prevail on it. But I think, you know, possibly for another occasion, somebody could prevail on that. I think the ruling was, was that meant physical documents. But again, why? It doesn't say physical. So I wasn't necessarily sure why the court decided that meant physical. I think that it could have been more broadly interpreted under the liberal provisions and say, well, that means all communications, all original communications. In 1973, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have SMS messages. And we didn't have confide, obviously. So I wish there was maybe a more willingness to adapt to the technology without saying that the legislature needs to change the law. So I think it can be done two ways. And unfortunately, neither way has been done in Missouri. And the other problem you had, of course, is that because these things disappeared the moment they were sent and received, you couldn't show that they would even be subject to Chapter 109. I mean, so you're between a rock and a hard place right off the bat. Yeah. Well, we've already talked somewhat about records as opposed to meetings, but let's just address a few more topics there. This is a very practical one. For someone wanting to send out a sunshine request, to whom do you send it and how do you identify that person? The law says custodian of records that can be confusing for some people, but here's my advice. Find out who the custodian is, call them up, call the clerk of the municipality, whoever you need and say, I wanna know who the custodian is. St. Louis City does have a portal, you can use that. St. Louis County does have a portal. But the best practice is find out who the actual custodian is. And believe me, I've made these phone calls and I've had others do it. They don't know who their custodian is. They're not sure they have one. So, well, then you show them the law that says they need- That's a violation in and of itself. That's a violation right there. So they need to know, and then they need to tell you. And I don't know exactly the statute number, but it's in the Sunshine Law. They have to tell you who the custodian is. Get that person's email, get that person's address, 
I send a lot of emails, so we do it a lot by email. We'll just attach a PDF, or sometimes we'll just send it directly through email saying this is the record that we want because it tracks it. There's an easy way to see when you sent it. But yes, custodian of record has to receive it. Unless you want to add something to that, John. No, I would just say this. So one tidbit is that we always suggest to our clients who are making the request that they include a paragraph or a, really only a sentence in there that says, if this is not directed to the proper custodian of records, please direct me to the proper custodian of yes. records. Now, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem <laughs> if they're going to say, A, I don't know who the custodian is, or B, just ignore you right. and say, you know, you haven't sent it to the proper custodian. But at least it shows that, you know, again, the statute's supposed to be liberally construed in favor of right. promoting access. At least it shows that you've done everything you yes. can as the citizen. Making I agree with that. We do that, too, because sometimes they'll say, no, 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 just send it to this person without telling me they're the custodian. So I'm like, you know, please write me back and inform me that you're accepting this on behalf of the custodian. It'll be a media liaison or somebody like that who might be more accustomed to fielding these sort of sunshine requests. But Joe's right, because if this were to end in litigation, you were to sue like a few months later, their lawyer is going to get involved and say, you didn't send it to the custodian of records. That's going to be their first argument. That was an argument made in almost every case that we were involved. They just make it, even if you sent it to the custodian. They still just put it into their defenses anyway. I think that's a big advantage that having a lawyer with you when you write the thing gives you is that I know the three of us have all brought suits on Sunshine Act violations. And when you write that thing, the first time you draft it, you're thinking, if anything goes wrong, I need to you know, connect the dots and get yeah. ready for a suit because that, you want the stuff. I mean, that's right. why you file this thing. You don't file it to you know, hope that it, you get something or you go away if it doesn't. Right. By the way, the statute is 610.023, subsection one, each public governmental body is to appoint a custodian who is to be responsible for the maintenance of that body's records. Maybe two other things regarding the written records. One of them would be redactions. Can either of you give us a, a little summary of what you do or how often this happens that it seems like it's not what it should be? Yeah, it happens to me almost every day, at least once a week, because redactions are now a big component, particularly with St. Louis County. St. Louis County is a heavy redacting government. St. Louis City Police actually does it the right way. The Metropolitan Police Department, when they redact, right next to the redaction, they will give you the reason. You need to have that. That's the law. And for years, St. Louis County was not doing that. So you would just get redactions and you would have to guess, you know, why were they redacting it? Why not? We fight over these all the time. To me, a redaction isn't just a redaction. It's a denial of access to the record, period. So we see that as a denial and they need to give us a reason why they're denying. Now, typically what they'll do is, you know, internal affairs report. Let's say somebody were to you know, again, die in the St. Louis County Jail, which as we know, five people did in 2019, resulted in several litigations of which we're part of. We would request prior to the litigation, the internal affairs report. They would give it to us, but they would redact all the names of all the people who are potential defendants. So you wouldn't know who, and they would say that's a personnel record. So that's a very common thing. We would argue a name of a person isn't a personnel record. A personnel record is their disciplinary history and, you know, all of that. So there is this broad use of trying to hide information from people and, you know, phone numbers. For example, if somebody, if a constituent were to write in and say, hey, I have a complaint about something, they're going to redact their phone number and their address. As a lawyer, you might want to reach out to them. They may be a witness that you need to talk to. So this is a huge problem. Contest them always. Demand the reason why, and then see if they can give you any more context. And the other thing is, and I know this happens at the newspaper because I've talked to journalists who they'll just say it's closed 
these emails are closed. No, say you want the emails redacted because then you're gonna know who it was sent to and from. You're gonna know the date of the emails and you're gonna know some very important information, how many emails, how many conversations. So you're gonna get context. So if they say these emails are closed under number one or number two, go back to them and demand that they be produced in a redacted manner. Use the redactions to your advantage to find out the date and the time and the people who are on the communication. Because oftentimes you're gonna find out, indeed it's not an attorney communication. There's a third party on it. <laughs> right? Who doesn't even work in the city. So there are tactics. I would say those are the two of them to look out for. Awesome. Last topic I got on my list is uh, what about those costs? One nightmare scenario, maybe a citizen is thinking, I asked for a bunch of stuff. Are they going to send it to me and give me a bill for $4,000? Could one of you describe the process by which you figure out whether you're going to be charged, how much you're going to be charged, and you know, other advice on what to do to protect yourself from that surprise bill? In my experience, the bills aren't a surprise bill. They usually tell you in advance that this is going to cost X dollars for us to assemble and provide to you. But a wise approach from the standpoint of the requester is to put a provision in their request that says something to the effect that this is going to cost more than $25, you know, please let me know so that they can, you know, reevaluate their request, the scope of the request, see if they want to narrow it somewhat. It's not as big a problem for my clients for two reasons. One is a specific provision in the statute that says that the public governmental body can waive any fee if it's deemed to be in the public interest. Now, I'm sure Mark and his clients would all feel that all their requests are in the public interest. Absolutely. But invariably, <laughs> the public governmental body will say, oh, you're just a serial requester, gadfly, you just want the information. It's a little harder to do that when the request is made by the media. It doesn't mean that we don't, in representing the media, it doesn't mean that we don't get demands for fees sometimes that are exorbitant that used to result quite a bit because they would say, well, we need to have our lawyer review the documents to see if they're exempt or not. And fortunately, that has been answered. But that's something, by the way, that may change as a result of some legislation that's pending now in the General Assembly. But the Supreme Court has recently held, I think it was 2022, maybe it was 2021, that's that good. you cannot gross, charge gross for versus the, Parsons. Yeah, yeah, Gross versus Parsons. I think that was Elaine yeah, Gross's case. So. Yeah. That you cannot charge for the time that your attorney is going to spend. And that's a particular problem. In state government, it's less of a problem because the attorneys, their time may be 25, 40 bucks an hour. But when you're dealing with some of these municipal governments that are represented by some of the large law firms that do this kind of work in St. Louis City and County, they're charging 250, 350, 450 an hour. Right. So that was a huge problem. Now, fortunately, that is not the case any longer. You can't charge for that. The provision that's uh, pending in the legislature would allow for charges for review and redaction at pretty much similar to the existing statute, but at the lowest rate that a clerk would pay for doing that work. That would not necessarily cover you know, the legal fees that they would claim that could be uh, charged, which I don't think even under the legislation that's existing or is pending would be allowed to be charged. Yeah. You know, there's a statute 610.026 that it almost sounds quaint at this point where they talk about 10 cents per page for copy paper. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like I didn't think 40 years ago I'd be living in an era where, you know, who does that anymore? Yeah. But I assume the main way to get information now is not paper. How do the charges pertain to the digital information other than what, Joe, you just mentioned about having someone do research? It'd just be the research time. Uh, the medium, what's a flash drive cost? Maybe 25 bucks. Yeah. 
if that, I don't know. So they can't charge you anything else other than what you described plus a flash and, drive. And the statute also says that there's a preference for producing that type of information in electronic fashion. One of the problems that we run into from time to time, and I don't know if Mark has the same problem, is a lot of times, you know, the media will make requests for a vast amount of information that they know is available electronically, and they want it in native format so that they can organize it and extrapolate from it and determine, you know, trends and things like that. Whereas the agency or the public governmental body may want to just give you a PDF mm -hmm. that you can't do that with to make it difficult. Our position is the statute requires it to be produced in native format if it's requested in that fashion. Yeah. And that's actually a big deal. Again, talking about the future and how data is stored, the ability for the media or anyone to get native format is hugely important. And I'll just say, let me add one thing. The government is trying to price you out. That's an important thing to say. They know that a lot of people can't afford a big bill, especially if they're not represented by a lawyer. So if it's just someone, you know, upset about something in their municipal government, they know if they send them a bill for $250 that they're probably not going to proceed to get the records. This is a big problem because I think that what the government is doing is they're pricing people out of the market. Now, to be perfectly honest, after, you know, the Sunshine and Government Accountability Project started getting going and we started litigating these cases and challenging governments, they backed off. They don't charge us now. So in many ways, we now get no bill. But I know that they're not treating other people the same way. It's unfair. So if they know Joe or the Post-Dispatch or the Government Accountability Project are making these, sometimes they'll ease off because they know there's going to be litigation if the bill is obscene. But it's the average ordinary people, I think, that are getting these bills. And they're unable to pay them, and they're getting priced out every day across the state. So I think that's a big problem. So here's one solution. I think this is an important one for lawyers to know, too, because we've encountered this before. When we're doing a deep dive into a a constitutional deprivation or a Monell claim. We have a lot of claims that allege a pattern and practice of unconstitutional behavior by governments, including St. Louis County. And in order to prove our pattern and practice claim, we have to go back in time and we have to go through documents. For example, we have a case now where, you know, a family was thrown out of their home because they didn't cut the grass right? And the police were coming down on them hard. Said, you got to leave, threw them out, you know, 40 days, didn't let them come in to abate it. And we believed based on other evidence that there had been a pattern practice. So the bottom line is, instead of saying we want all the orders to evict for the past five years, which we knew would get a big bill, we said, we want access to it. We're going to walk in. I'm going to bring my scanner and we'll pay for someone to sit there and watch us. And that's it. And we did that. And it was $80 versus thousands of dollars for them to make photocopies. So I would always say request access or in the alternative copies and tell them that you can negotiate the price or what you want to do. Is that access specifically invited by a statute? Yeah, I mean, I think it's in there. I mean, it I'm, worked. <laughs> I'm assuming because we've been doing it all along. And I think the statute does say you have to provide access. Okay. It doesn't necessarily say you have to provide copies. And again, people long time ago, and a lot of these statutes were written in the early 1900s, I mean, including 109, people would walk into the sheriff's office and say, I want to see a copy of this. Or they'd walk into the clerk's office and typically they would just be given a file and they would be allowed to access it and look at it. And if they wanted, but then they said, well, it's 10 cents per copy. Well, I have a phone. I could just take a picture of it, right? You don't really need to do all that anymore. So again, 
take advantage of the modern equipment and the tools you have. Ask for access if you know it's going to be a lot of documents. And again, they're not going to be able to say, we can't give you access for six months. Why not? Why would it take you so long? Now, they could say it's going to take six months to give you copies because there's a long line ahead of you. So try the access route. Give it a shot. It's a good tactic. It works. I think one problem you could run into with that, and it shouldn't be a problem because the statute requires that you separate when you store documents, you separate the exempt from the non-exempt. Mm -hmm. But I can see a public governmental body arguing or claiming that we're going to have to go into this file that you're requesting access to and separate out the information. And that's going to cost X, Y, Z. That is an issue that could arise. But then they're going to have to do that. So it's kind of one of the negotiations. Sometimes they're like, the government's like, gee, we don't want to get someone to do all that. That's going to take 40 hours. And now after this case, we can't charge them for attorney time. So it has to be clerk time. So sometimes they just get frustrated too. And they say, look, we don't want to spend time on this either. Just come in, look at the records. But I agree. They could say there's one line in there in each order that you want to look at for the past five years. There's one line there that you can't see. So we're not going to let you have access. So Joe's right. But see what they say. Give it a shot. More and more uh, public governmental bodies. And I think this is a great practice and it's a practice that they should follow. There is the Internet out there and you can create websites. You know, you can have the city of Kirkwood municipal website that has all your minutes, has all kinds of information. It may not have everything that's going to be requested. But you can put publicly accessible and available documents on that website, which makes it easier for the requester and makes it easier for the public governmental body to comply with Chapter 610. Great. Yeah, open yourself up. Don't wait for uh, someone to knock on the door. We're going to close it up now. But thank you both for joining me for this conversation, two-part conversation. And we're going to talk about, for instance, proposed changes to the Sunshine Law. And then we're going to talk about litigation. So, again, thank you for being here. It's been a great conversation. Great. Thank you. This has been another episode of The Jury is Out. I'm Eric Feith, and I'll see you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.